Well, our scripture reading this morning before we dive into uh, the sermon is Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, which says, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? We can bring an, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, he has been raised, has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, we could spend all morning on that, couldn't we? Well, good morning, you guys. It's good to see you again. I feel really loud, but I'm going to let the sound guys just take over with that, because when I start talking loud, you can blame them for me blowing your eardrums out. You know, thinking about that passage in Romans, I, I asked BJ to read that before we got into our study this morning in 1 John. And if you want to turn to 1 John chapter 4, we're going to continue our study there. But I wanted to set the tone with that passage from the end of Romans chapter 8, because I, don't, I think it's impossible if we hear that we can't be spoken over, that all things created things as God that urged as Christians. I hear those words for us. No creed separates in Christ Jesus. That should always encourage us. That should always fire us up. And the, and the part of that verse that I, I was really emphasizing in my heart and mind this week as I was um, studying and preparing for our, our time in 1 John 4 was Romans 8.34 where he says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who is it that can condemn us? God is the judge. And if he declared us righteous by the finished work of Jesus, then we are righteous. Amen? That's the end of it. But how often are we struggling in our lives and going through the day-to-day -day situations feeling condemned for things? Struggling with condemnation, struggling with our, our flesh and with sin. And Paul began Romans 8 by saying this. I want to read this to you as we continue to set the, the table, really, for 1 John 4. In Romans 8, verses 1 through 4, he began that chapter in this way. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. Did you notice that? What the law could not do, God did. And I would add to that, what we could not do for ourselves, God did. Amen? He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
Why all the talk about being free from condemnation before God? Because that's where we're going at the end of 1 John chapter 4. That's what we're going to be talking about. As we conclude this chapter, the beloved apostle is going to show us a new depth that the love of God takes us to. We've been talking about the style of writing here in 1 John since we began this, this letter. And we've been talking about how John's using amplification. He's not flowing linearly. He's revisiting subjects over and over again, almost cycling around. But each time he comes around, he goes a little bit deeper and he takes us into a little bit more depth. And so that's why when you read this letter, it feels like he's repeating himself a lot. He's not, but he is. He is actually going back over material, but every time he approaches the topic that he's already discussed, he goes a little bit deeper each time. And as we look at it from this point of view at the end of chapter 4, there's a new depth that he wants to take us in our understanding and in our comprehension and in our lives of the love of God. He wants to take us to a new understanding of the depth of the love of God. And it's not just freeing for us to know that we're loved by God, but what he says to us in this coming chapter is that the love of God frees us from fear of death. It frees us from fear of eternity, from fears that we have in our lives, I think in many ways, but the context is going to deal with our fear of what we haven't seen yet, fear of the unknown. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of us struggle with fear of the unknown? How many of us actually are concerned or worrying to some capacity about whatever happens next in our lives? It could be in this life, or maybe you have that, those fears over eternity. Maybe you're not really sure. I've talked to plenty of Christians who, when they talk about eternity, are scared of it. They don't want to talk about it. No, it just sounds too, I just, I, I just don't want to talk about it. Well, John's going to discuss why we don't have to fear eternity in this chapter at the end. We need to not just know what the scriptures say about final judgment, but we need to be at peace in our souls about it as well. We need to be at peace in our souls about what the scriptures say about final judgment because the love of God has literally thrown the fear of judgment and separation of God out of our hearts. The love of God has cast it out. It's gone. So the question that we have to face this morning is, are we afraid? Do we experience this fear of what happens on the other side of eternity? Something that we do not control. I believe that all of us have faced or are facing the fear of the unknown. This unknown territory that's eternity. And John's aim in our text is to give us all, I think, a good night's rest tonight. Figuratively speaking. I think he wants to put our hearts at ease. As believers. Now, if, if there's unbelievers listening, I think that you need to get saved, and I'm going to show you why. But for believers, for those who are in Christ, this is going to settle our hearts and put us at peace with what Christ has done in us. So, as we approach this text, I hope that it leaves us with no doubt that judgment before God is nothing to fear because we're in Christ Jesus. Let's read the text this morning. First John chapter 4. Well, I'm going to pick up in the second half of verse 16, and we're going to read down through the end of the chapter, which is through verse 21. John writes this to the churches. He says, God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. 
So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. This is the word of the Lord. The love of God through Jesus is so transformative that it not only becomes the driving force for our lives, but it supplies the fuel for the machine via the Holy Spirit. It's not only the driving force, but he provides the fuel that we need. And he says this in verse 17, in this love has made, is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. When we look back at the life of Jesus, we are not meant to feel disheartened. When we look at Jesus's example, that's not supposed to make us feel disheartened. By looking at that and feeling these these. I don't know, these feelings of ineptitude, maybe? Of failure, of like, I, I can't live that way. I'm not like that. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have Jesus' heart for people. I don't even like people, especially on I-90. You know, like we think about these things. We're like, I, I, don't, I don't have Jesus' heart for people. They drive me crazy. We're not meant to be disheartened when we look at Jesus and just be like, ah, I'm so terrible, I'm awful, I'm the worst. We aren't supposed to be disheartened by how much we failed to be like him. We are meant to be inspired to be like him. The desire is not to make you feel like a piece of garbage crawling out on the ground. The idea when we look at the life of Jesus is to encourage us to recognize that he has given us his Holy Spirit. That he has empowered you to live a life that looks like his. To walk in the spirit so that you can glorify God by the things that you do. But so many times we become disheartened by failure instead of inspired by the purity and holiness of Jesus who died on the cross while we were still dead in our trespasses and sin. We need to remember this, you guys. We are not intended to be disheartened by the life of Jesus. It's meant to inspire. It's meant to call us to himself not push us away. He's given us his spirit as a seal unto the day of redemption, he says in Ephesians 4.30, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Peter's really helpful in this conversation in 2 Peter chapter 1. In verses 2 through 4, he says this, our Lord, grace is divine, being supplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus. Verse 3, has everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Who called us by his own glory and goodness. And by these he has given us very great and precious promises. So that through them you may share in the divine nature. Escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. Notice that he gives us all these things by his grace. Not one of us earned one bit of it. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness. So much to unpack there, but, but just breathe in that statement and think about how inadequate we often feel. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we try to present ourselves as having all the answers, but how often do we know the truth inside that we really struggle with what we know? We really struggle with our limits. We really struggle with what we can't do. And I don't know about you, but I'll speak for myself here and you can agree on the inside and I'll be the awkward one. 
But a lot of times I forget the things that I'm actually gifted at and all I focus on are the things that I'm terrible at. All I stare at is the things that I know that I'm incompetent at and I forget that the Lord has gifted me in these ways and gifted others in the other ways and that as the body we come together and we function as one. I get disheartened by looking at my lack instead of looking at what God has called me to be, looking at who he has called me to be and recognizing that his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. He has given you and I everything that's required for life and godliness. And so if we are feeling like we got shortchanged, you can just label that flesh. You can label that sin. You didn't get shortchanged in life. God has given you everything that you require. Now, are you tapping into his strength? Are you trusting in the spirit? Are you trying to be something that you're not? That's the question. We've been, giving, get, been given in Jesus everything that is required. And because the requirements have been given not based on merit, but by his grace and goodness, by his love for us that's complete in us, we can have confidence to look forward to something that's out of our control. This is what begets confidence in eternity. This is what removes fear. That's why we're laying all this foundation work. If I'm trusting in God and I'm relying on who he has said that I am, if he's given me everything that's required here, then I can trust that he has given me everything that is required there. Right? I mean, you're like, well, I don't know. He has been faithful since the beginning, but he just might fail me. Are you crazy? (laughs) Boo. You guys, that's, he's not going to fail you. He never has. If it feels like he is, or like he's ignoring, or like he isn't supplying, it's a me problem. That's on my part. That's not on the Lord's part. And this can give us confidence, not only in this life, but confidence to look forward to a day of judgment that oftentimes I think believers unnecessarily fear. We don't have to fear that day. Because as he is, Jesus, so also are we in this world. Loved by the Father. Blessed by God. Led by his spirit. Think about all the things that God did in the life of Jesus when he was incarnate. When he was here in human flesh. And he says, I have done those things in you. Am I Jesus? No. Has he given me a spirit to enable me to live a life like him? That exemplifies him? Yes. 100%. Church, a lot of times when we dial this down, we actually struggle with love. We actually struggle with whether I'm loved by God. Whether God loves me, whether he even wants me around him. Am I in that little outcast group in heaven that's totally emo, kind of over there in the corner like God loves me, but I'm just going to, you know, get in touch with my art. And, you know, like, what is it that, like... There's these parts of us, you're like, oh, he's ripping us. No, I'm part of that crew, you guys. Like, a lot of times I feel like I don't deserve the love of God, like God's putting up with me that he doesn't really like me. Do you ever feel like that? I mean, like, everyone's like, you feel like that? Yes. All the time. And we need to come back to the scriptures and remember what God says about us. And this is what he says. This rocked me this week. John 17. I didn't expect to go here, but the Lord brought me here to encourage me. And I don't know about you guys, but the Lord blesses me through Bible studies. The Lord really ministers to me. This is personal. John 17. Jesus is is in the middle of his high priestly prayer. 
It's the end of the upper room discourse, that, that section in, in the Gospel of John between chapters 13 and 17. And in his prayer, he's praying to the Father on behalf of his disciples. And he says this, notice this, Father, I want those you have given to me or to be with me where I am. Can I say that again? I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Who in this room fully at the core of your being believes that the father has given you to Jesus through his sacrifice? Because this is scriptural for Christians. This is the truth. God, the father has given you to Jesus because of his sacrifice. You belong to Christ. That's why you say, I am in Christ. I belong to Jesus. That's that faith that you have placed in him. That's that salvation that Christ has provided for you, that grace by faith. And in salvation, we have been given to Jesus. And how many of you struggle with actually believing that he wants you with him? That he wants you there, that he likes you. And I've been saying this a lot lately because I think it rings in our culture a little bit more because we're looking at, I love you. I do, right? We have no problem looking and saying, well, I love you. I love you too, bro. (laughs) Try it out this time. Next time you guys walk up to each other and go, I really like you. Doesn't that sound a little odd to us? It shouldn't, (laughs) no, (laughs) but we're odd, aren't we? (laughs) Everyone like moves like six feet away from you guys. Because it's different, isn't it? We know that God loves us, but when we read something like this, and I could show you other passages too, Jesus wants you with him. He wants you with him. You realize the goal, the end game of all the things that we see right now. If you read the end of the book, if you go to the end of Revelation, in Revelation 21, it says God's dwelling is now with man. God's dwelling is now with human beings. He is restoring us. He is redeeming us so that he can be with us because he wants you with him. He loves you and he even likes you. We got to get this through our heads because if I walk around this world for the rest of my days, fully believing and convicted in my heart that Jesus loves me and likes me and wants me with him, how does that change my joy situation? How does that change the way that I address people? How does it change me in traffic? It's really transformative if we let it be you guys. Jesus says, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous father, Jesus continues, the world has not known you. However, I have known you and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. This is the essence of what John is communicating about love in this letter. Remember, this is the gospel of John we're reading in chapter 17. And the letter, so much of his letter to these churches in Ephesus that we're reading right here in 1 John is emphasizing things that Jesus taught him directly. He's passing on what the Lord taught him. He's saying these things are real. Jesus loves you. He wants you to be with him. Church, we have complete confidence in the day of judgment because we are not going to be assessed based on our own merit. We are not going to be assessed for salvation based on our own merit. 
We will be assessed based on the sufficiency of Christ's merit. God is going to look at you and I and say, either well done or no. And it's based on Jesus. It's based on being found in him. It's based on being a believer in him. Nothing that we ever earned, nothing that we could have ever accrued on our own. It's not based on our own merit. Romans 5.19, Paul emphasizes this point. He says, for just as through one man's disobedience, he's talking about Adam. Just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. He says, Adam failed, and that's how sin came into the world. Jesus died and rose again, and that's how salvation is given. That is the absolute truth. The related adjective translated righteous here is attributed to sinful humans who believe in Christ by the verb kathistami. It here means to judicially establish. I'm going to make a really strong point about this because when Paul says the many will be made righteous, he's speaking in legal terms. He's talking about being in a courtroom. What are we talking about in First John chapter 4? We're talking about being afraid of final judgment. And he says, you want to talk about final judgment? Here's the judicial terms. It's to judicially establish something. The verb is in the same family as that for righteousness. It's often translated justified. So what Paul's saying in a legal courtroom term that we are being declared righteous by the judge himself because of the sacrifice of Jesus. You are being found not guilty. And nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, this is the gospel. And the gospel frees us from fear. The gospel frees us from fear of what's to come. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants you with him. And by his own sacrifice, he has had believers, those who put their faith in him, cleared of all charges. Cleared of all charges. We don't have to fear death. If something happened in this building today or as you walked out, if there's a Mack truck with your name on it on 4th Street and you go to see Jesus today, in Christ, you will be cleared of all charges. Your sin is washed away. That is only in Christ. Because of that, verse 18, back in 1 John 4, matters so much. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear. Because fear involves punishment, so the one who fears is not complete in love. The one who's afraid isn't complete in love. If I'm experiencing fear in this way, something's wrong. Now, Spurgeon clarifies this beautifully. He says, that is a servile fear, of course, for there's a fear that has no punishment in it. He's going to clarify what type of fear we're talking about. He's talking about being afraid of eternal damnation. But Spurgeon says the holy fear that even angels feel when veil, they veil their faces in the presence of the Most High. He says, there is no punishment in that reverent awe. The more we have love toward God, the more of that filial or son or daughter, it's like a family fear, we shall have. He says, but the slave, that slavish dread, that awful terror that begets dislike within itself cannot live where true love is planted within the soul. That fear of damnation, that fear of separation cannot live in our souls. It cannot dwell there. And if we are entertaining it, the perfect love of God, 
love of God has driven that out of you. God's perfect love should drive that right out. And if you're letting it dwell, you don't have to. That's not the work of the Spirit. As his love remains in us, it takes root. That love planted in our very souls, growing and flourishing as the Holy Spirit waters it daily. And in due season, it bears much fruit to the glory of God. Notice this, that fear produces, fear produces sin in our lives. The type of fear he's talking about. Not the good reverential fear of God, but unhealthy fear produces sin in our lives. It causes us to live in a fearful way and react wrongly towards the gospel and towards the calling of God. But love, love bears fruit. Fear is crippling. A fearful life, fear of death, fear of judgment, fear of failure, fear of loss. What if I just fail at life? What if I completely fail at life? You young people in the room, do you ever wonder, am I completely failing at life? Well, here's, here's the thing. Define life. Are you failing at what you feel like you should be doing, or are you failing at what God has actually called you to do? Because that understanding matters greatly. Knowing what God has called you to, and maybe God has called you to a simple life. Maybe God has called you to faithfulness in the small things for all of your days. Maybe no one will ever know your name. Maybe you won't be on that billboard. Maybe you won't drop 40 in the NBA finals. It's definitely not in the cards for me. Right? <laughs> but you guys, does that mean that, that I've failed at life? Let me say it this way. If the Lord this afternoon took away my ability to speak and walk, would my life still have value? Yeah, it would. Absolutely. Because life is a gift from God and eternity is what's next. And every moment of this life is to be lived in submission to him, to honor him, to glorify him because his perfect love dwells in my heart. I can be satisfied in who he has made me to be. And in all circumstances, what does Paul say? I've learned to be content. I can have a lot, I can have a little. But he says, I've learned to be content. He says, I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. We misuse that verse a lot. I can do all things. What did Paul mean by all things? Paul meant that he could glorify God in whatever circumstances he was in. That's what he's talking about. And that's what the Lord allows us to do with his implanted love. Fear cripples us. Fear is of the flesh. The ever-remaining love of God is a garden planted by flowing streams of water that never runs dry. I'll say that again. The ever-remaining love of God. You'll notice all throughout this, this book, he has talked about God's love that remains in us. It remains in us through that filling of the Holy Spirit. He says that remaining love of God this is a garden that's planted by flowing streams of water that never runs dry. And what is the first fruit of the Spirit? What is the first thing that the love of God does in us? First fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. The whole list will be up there. But I'll just read the first one. Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. God loves you, pours his Spirit into you. What's the first thing it produces? 
more love, right? It produces love in our lives. Now notice this. This is so important because of verse 19. It's the next verse in 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us. That's what he's talking about. This is the fruit of the Spirit. The love of God has transformed our lives so that the first thing we produce in the Spirit, the first fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists, is more love. And this, is become, this becomes the thing that defines us as the church because we love in all circumstances just as he does. Because our love can now transform others' lives and can impact them in amazing ways because of the love that he's poured into us. And how many of us are killing it on that front? And by killing, I mean doing really great. You're like, oh, dude, I'm killing that love game. It's going so well. Dude ran over my foot with a cart at Walmart yesterday. I was like, peace be with you. <laughs> Pushed my kids right out of the way. They hit the Fruit Loop stand. It all fell on top of them. And I was like, God bless you. No, what do we turn into? We turn into Christian rage monster, right? You're ready to call down fire on walmart right or on the freeway you i'm just putting it in real terms this these are things that we struggle with we're just like james and john city kicks jesus out and jesus like well we'll move on then the guys are like you ready to roast those guys they're already over there opening up their stay puff marshmallows (laughs) fire it up lord is that the heart of jesus No, the first fruit of the spirit that the, sorry, the Holy Spirit, as he pours into us, the first thing it produces is more love. Look at the rest of the list. Joy, peace, patience. Oh, we're doing great, aren't we? (laughs) Kindness, even on Facebook, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Boy, should we go back next week and just sit in the fruit of the spirit for a while? Are these the things that are auto-responding in our lives? When somebody pings your life, so to speak, like a text message, do you (gasps) auto-respond? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is that what we're doing? Or is the first thing that comes out of me like, you have no idea what I've been through today. You have no idea. Hey, only my wife's allowed to say that to me. You have no idea what I've been through today. I'm like... (laughs) Chocolate ice cream, extra brownies, you know, like that. You guys, this is real life. This is how we should be responding. This is being filled with the Spirit. We love because He first loved us. When we experience His love, it awakens our desire to love Him. And as we'll see in a moment, to love others. As we continue to be filled by the love of God and relationship with Him, this spreads to other people. Church, we're we're struggling with love because I think in a lot of ways, culturally, we're buying into what the world has said love is. We're buying into what the world defines love as. Love is a feeling. It's not looking at a choice between right and wrong. A lot of times, love isn't going to feel real good. Sometimes love is going to hurt the most. And that's why we need to do it, because Jesus didn't base the outplaying, if you will, of his love on how it was going to feel. Remember the cross. That was his ultimate demonstration of love. 
And if you look at that and you think that that was enjoyable, you're crazy. Why would we expect love to always be enjoyable in this life? Love is a necessary reflection of the goodness and grace and mercy of God. Our will and and affection is transformed by the love of God as it replaces our selfishness and matures outward into our relationships with others. This is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 3. In verses 17 and 18, he says this. It's on the screen. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. He says we are being transformed into his image. And it's interesting because when we think about being transformed into the image of Christ, do we think about being people who love the way that he loves? Is that where our mind goes to, being self-sacrificial? Or do we imagine ourselves being transformed into someone who is right all the time? who has all the answers. There's parts about Jesus I think sometimes we as Christians just connect with. You're like, yeah, I want to be able to work miracles. That'd be pretty cool. And I want to be able to make a whole lot of bread, especially with these prices. And we think about these different things that the Lord was able to do, and we start, we start looking in that direction. Like, I want to be like Jesus in these ways. What are the ways that God wants to make us like his son? He wants to make us loving. He wants to make us joyful. He wants us to be people of peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And you can say it with me, self-control. If you sang the song, you know what I'm doing. Otherwise, you're like, what is wrong with him? He keeps like, yeah. (laughs) I'll teach you the song later. We'll go down and sing it with the kids. You guys, as he transforms us, we begin to live up to the name Christian. The name Christian means to be Christ-like, or if you want to go with the actual definition from Antioch, where it first was founded, little Christ, it was a derogatory term. Look at all these little Jesuses running around. What were they doing? Laying their lives down, self-sacrificing for each other. And because loving others sacrificially is what we're called to do, It means that these statements are very true that John says in verses 20 through 21. Notice this. He says, if anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Take it easy on us, John. Right? Well, he just shellacks us with that. You're like, oh, that's that's not fair. It's more than fair. It's right. He's 100% right. We have this command from him, John continues in verse 21. The one who loves God must, 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 must also love his brother and sister. True love hates that which is unlovely, Spurgeon says. It is inevitable that a man who is full of love should feel intense indignation against that which is contrary to love. Some people think that if you love, you will never use strong language, but that's not the case. Sometimes because a surgeon loves the patient, he cuts more deeply. I remember my wife had a a minor surgery she had to have on her leg. And I remember um, it was something you could see on the surface. It was on the front of her, her thigh. But underneath, I was not prepared to see. And I got to watch the whole thing. What was going to come out? 
of her leg. I've never looked inside someone's leg before. They let me watch the whole thing. Thanks, guys. You know what's fascinating? As the surgeon was cutting open her leg, I watched how deep the scalpel went in. For you with weak stomachs, you're like, oh, Mike, stop. There's a point to this. And I was like, dude, it's just this tiny thing on the surface. And he goes, there's a lot more underneath the surface. And he sank that thing in way deep and cut a piece out for something tiny, this like diamond-shaped thing out of her leg. And when he peeled it back and pulled that out, I gasped. Because what was underneath the surface was about three to four times bigger than what was on the surface. You guys, sometimes the surgeon knows how deep the problem is. And when the Lord starts digging into our hearts, we're like, no, 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 I'm good. I just, I just got mad this one time. Can you just take it off the top? Just lance it, right? Just, just slice that right off me and I'll be fine. And he's like, no, this is about three inches down. And we got to make sure we get all of it. So I'm going to go deep into your heart. I'm going to dig deep and I'm going to get to the root of the problem because the remaining love of God must beget love for others. And if something is stopping us, if something is inhibiting us as a good surgeon, if you read the end of Hebrews chapter 12, as a father who loves us and disciplines because he loves, he's going to cut deeper. He's going to go down and get all of it. We know that this is what we need because if you just deal with the surface and you don't deal with the problem, it comes back, doesn't it? And it comes back meaner stronger and more detrimental than ever. You see, love compels both gentleness but also correction. Oftentimes we misstep because we aren't being loving in these things. We're reacting to situations and not responding in love. Oftentimes in our lives we're showing what's beneath the surface by our reaction because we didn't stop and really consider how we should respond. Love is going to give us infinite patience, greater awareness, appropriate tact, and infinite wisdom in how we care for one another. And if this is as convicting for you as it is for me, we have to accept what the Word of God is doing at this very moment, and that's that it's dissecting between the bone and the marrow and the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. The Lord is dividing between what's really going on inside of us right now. For the person who does not Love his brother or sister whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Most commentators would agree is in that reading that this is as broad as you can make it. Some are like, well, that only applies to the church. Actually, the terms he's using should be applied very broadly. We need to be loving towards everyone. We need to show the love of Christ to everyone. There's nowhere in scripture you can say, I don't have to love this person because they're in the wrong for this. Now, love is going to cause us to do sometimes the most difficult thing It's going to call us into action and not passivity. It's going to call us to speak to the situation and not hide from it. We make mistakes, but we cannot continue to hate our brothers and sisters. That's the flesh and it's sin. We aren't justified in hating others ever. Worship team and communion team, could you guys come forward? Um. Maybe as, as these guys get set, I want to call your attention here for just one moment, please. Maybe there needs to be some confession here. Maybe there needs to be some confession of sin. 
maybe there needs to be some recognition on our own part individually that we have failed in this way, that we have held bitterness and animosity towards one another. And Paul says this in Ephesians 4. This is a powerful passage. Verses 31 through 32, he says, Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. Notice verse 32. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Church, we are being called this morning, and we're going to share communion. And in the sharing of communion, we recognize that this this is the body and the blood of Jesus. This is a family meal that we get to share as the church. This is for believers only. This is something that Jesus established with his disciples in remembrance of him. It's partaking in something very special. And, I, and I've talked about this a lot recently, how in a lot of ways we've downplayed communion. It's just crackers and juice. No, it's a bit more than that because as Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians 11, he actually says that there's people that have gotten sick and died because they took communion in an unworthy way. And we're like, oh, that's just Paul being extreme. It's in the Bible. It's true. It's scriptural. We need to take this seriously. And so my call to us as the church is that as we distribute communion to you this morning, we're going to take it together. But as we hand this out, that we would come before the Lord and we would confess sin. That we would repent of sin, and I'm not going to have you come up on stage and talk about it. But I do want you to talk to the Lord about it. Because that's exactly what I'm going to do. This is a time of confession, of setting our hearts right before the Lord. Being purified, being cleansed, and being honest about our lack of forgiveness for one another. There's not one person in this room that has not experienced some form of bitterness, that hasn't been wronged in this life and had a hard time getting past it. Some of us are still in process with that. Some of us are still trying to figure out the next steps. I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people. I have very broken relationships in my family, and I still don't know how to fix them. And I'm still not sure if I'm doing it right. In times like this, I come before the Lord and I ask him to do what Psalm 26, 2 through 3 says, test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind for your faithful love guides me and I live by your truth. I want those words to be spoken in honesty. I want those words for me to be spoken in sincerity. And so, guys, this is an opportunity for us to come before the Lord and say, can I say that your faithful love guides me and I live by your truth? Can we say that together this morning? Let's have a little bit of time for confession between you and the Lord as the communion is handed out and then we'll take it together. Father, we just pray that as this happens, Lord, that you would stir our hearts to respond to you, to not be manipulated in any way, but to be inspired by your scriptures, inspired by what you have said, and by the Holy Spirit that lives within. Spirit, convict us of sin. Lord, if we have not been forgiving, may we come before you, confess, and be forgiven ourselves and forgive others. Lord, we can love one another and we are not inhibited from loving one another in the spirit because you have already loved us. But if we aren't being loving, then our flesh is involved. And would you test us, examine us, and convict us of that because you are a good father.
You are a good God. And you know how deep to cut. You know how much needs to be removed. And so, Lord, I ask that this would be the prayer of our church this morning, that you would remove in this moment what needs to be removed. That we would allow you to do your work. As we prepare our hearts to take communion together, Lord, would you stir us in this direction of confession, repentance, and restoration.